Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. Fear and anger are a threat to justice. They can infect a community, a state, or a nation and make us blind, irrational, and dangerous. That is a quote from Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, and also the attorney who represented a black man framed for the murder of a young white woman. In fighting for Walter McMillan's life, Stevenson realized that the false accusation did not just hurt his family, but spread like kudzu, otherwise known as the vine that ate the South all through Walter's community. And of course, on the other side, the white community had been suffering from fear and outrage when after several months, the murderer of 18-year-old Rhonda Morrison had not been caught. In a town of less than 6,000 residents, murder wasn't just unusual, it was almost unheard of. The local sheriff was in over his head, but as an elected official, he was too egotistical to admit it. When a career criminal thought he might leverage jail time for falsely accusing a black man of Rhonda's murder, Sheriff Tom Tate, along with the DA's office, ran with it. The 1986 murder of Rhonda Morrison and the framing of Walter McMillan reverberated through the small town of Monroeville, then all through the state of Alabama, finally coming to national attention in the early 90s. But this isn't just Walter's story. It's also Rhonda Morrison's. Following public pressure, law enforcement was in a race to close her case and pounced on the false accusation, letting Rhonda Morrison's real killer slip away. Welcome to Episode 85, The Murder of Rhonda Morrison and the Framing of Walter McMillan. You have probably heard of the small town of Monroeville, Alabama, though even today, the population is still only around 7,000. It was the inspiration for Maycomb, Alabama, the fictional town depicted in Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird. Both the novelist Harper Lee and prolific writer Truman Capote grew up in Monroeville and were neighbors and friends. I probably don't need to remind true crime fans, but Truman Capote wrote In Cold Blood, which is often held as the original nonfiction novel in the genre a genre that would explode in popularity in years to come. Lee and Capote were both influenced by their town, though in different ways. Capote wanted out. He wanted bigger things and a better, glamorous life. After Lee got a taste of fame, she retreated back to seclusion and the safety of her hometown. Despite Lee's misgivings on other adaptations, besides the film To Kill a Mockingbird, which she famously called a work of art, she gave permission to playwright Christopher Sergel in 1970 to adapt her work into a play. It premiered in 1991 at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. But the play also runs every May in Monroeville on the county courthouse grounds, and locals make up the cast. During intermission, white male audience members are chosen for the jury for the courtroom scene. The audience is also racially segregated in the scene to depict not only scenes from the book, but the truth about segregation in the early 1960s. Author Albert Murray, himself a Mobile, Alabama resident, likens the annual play to a town ritual, quote, like the religious underpinning of Mardi Gras. The whole town crowded around the actual courthouse, 
It's a part of a central civic education, what Monroeville aspires to be. But an article from the Smithsonian Magazine from 2015 has a quote from a black local man that is really telling. He said, quote, You won't find more than four or five black people in the audience. They've lived it. They've been there. They don't want to be taken back there again. They want to deal with a real thing that's going on now. White people interviewed by Paul Thoreau for the Smithsonian were more nostalgic. One man was a traveling salesman for 28 years until oil was found on his family's property. Thoreau said the last thing the man said to him was, quote, This is a wonderful town. Talk nice about Monroeville. Obviously, there is a division on how locals see their hometown, as well as the novel and movie that made it famous. But the novel is an undeniable cultural touchstone, with universal themes of racism, classism, gender roles, and, of course, the concepts of courage and forgiveness. To Kill a Mockingbird has become bigger than its reclusive author could have ever imagined. According to the American Library Association, it remains in the top 100 on the list of challenged or banned books across the country, sometimes for the use of racist language, though it reflected the speech of the time, but also simply for making people, quote, uncomfortable. But that is what it was supposed to do. The long-lasting success and influence of To Kill a Mockingbird prompted the Alabama legislature to designate Monroeville and Monroe County as the literary capital of Alabama in 1997. However, attorney and author Brian Stevenson, after spending much time in Monroeville working on the Macmillan case, disagrees with the legacy of To Kill a Mockingbird. He said, quote, Sentimentality about Lee's story grew even as the harder truths of the book took no root. And he's right. Monroeville became a sort of microcosm for small racist southern towns where people seemingly responded to the themes of Lee's book and the idea that people can change and times were changing, when in fact, nothing had really changed. Though segregation technically ended in 1964 when President Johnson signed in the civil rights legislation first proposed by JFK, it took the rest of the decade and into the 1970s to see the real end of segregation. And even after that, redlining, gerrymandering, and many other quasi-legal practices in the United States kept segregation alive. Not to mention the war on drugs became known as the New Jim Crow era, specifically targeting young black men. We watched Michael Bloomberg try to apologize for the racist stop-and-frisk policy he instated as mayor of New York City at the last Democratic debates. The policy targeted minority neighborhoods, and therefore black and brown men, almost exclusively. The New York City policy stopped in 2014, but it has become so widespread nationwide, we now refer to it as racial profiling. If we are still grappling with this issue in 2020, imagine life in a small southern town in 1986. In 1986, interracial relationships made targets of black men. Monroeville was still largely segregated, with the black citizens living on the outskirts of society and the white citizens controlling law enforcement and administration of the small town. To put this less delicately, the town basically self-segregated. It kept the peace, but it kept the black community down. And when the murder of Rhonda Morrison happened, it had a demoralizing effect on the already troubled small town. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rhonda Renee Morrison was born to parents Charles and Bertha Morrison of Monroeville, Alabama, on July 11, 1968. She was their only child. Charles had been in the Navy and then worked for 18 years as a scaler for Alabama River Pulp before working another 18 years as a dairy delivery truck driver. Bertha worked in a fabric factory. I've often read that they were influential or even well-to-do, but that doesn't mean they were rich, though it is often implied. The Morrisons were a well-respected white family, though, and Rhonda has been called posthumously one of the town's daughters. This is likely because Charles Morrison was a founding member of Eastwood Baptist Church, where he served many years as deacon. But Rhonda was certainly popular in her own right, a charming blonde teenager with many friends. She attended Monroe Academy, a private school which opened not long after segregation ended. She was a member of the yearbook staff and had many friends who later remembered her as bubbly, smiling, and very sweet. One friend remembered that in the seventh grade, the school got a new band director who started a flag corps, or what you might know of as the color guard of a marching band, ladies and now young men twirling flags, batons, rifles, and marching along with the band. It was great fun, and Rhonda was desperate to make the flag corps, but on her first tryout, she didn't make it. But she persisted and kept trying out and did make it her junior year. She was known as one of the best members of the flag line in her senior year. She was just so determined, her friend remembered. After she graduated from Monroe Academy, she had just begun classes at Patrick Henry Junior College and was working a part-time job at Jackson's Laundry and Cleaners on South Alabama Avenue in Monroeville. On the morning of Saturday, November 1, 1986, at around 9 a.m., Rhonda drove to the cleaners to open the store. This wasn't unusual. Rhonda often opened the store for her boss. She was supposedly seen by two witnesses between 9.15 and 10.30. And yet at 10.40, a female customer arrived to find the place empty. She noticed the cash register was open. Nervous, she and two other women went in around 11 a.m. and decided to look around. They found Rhonda's body under some clothing racks. She was lying face down and had been shot three times in the back though I've seen differing reports that she was also hit in one of her arms. Three spent bullet casings and part of a bullet were found near her body. Another spent casing was found in the bathroom in the rear of the establishment, about 50 feet from Rhonda's body, and one was found outside the bathroom door. And the bathroom showed signs of a struggle. There was a bullet hole in the bathroom ceiling, and Rhonda's gold necklace was found on the bathroom floor. A brick was found in the bathroom with hair on it, and an impression in the wall was discovered that had apparently been made by the brick being hurled against the wall. There was dust on Rhonda's clothing, and it looked as though she had been dragged to the spot where her body was found. One drop of blood was found on the floor near the cash register. The crime scene was contaminated from the beginning, not just by the innocent bystanders who raised the alarm, but by Sheriff Tom Tate and his deputies, rushing into the scene, destroying fingerprint evidence, and taking Rhonda's body away before the ABI, the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, could even get to the scene. As I told you, murder was not something that happened often in Monroeville, and the sheriff, by protocol, would have to call in the ABI. But in that age-old territorial tug between law enforcement agencies, the sheriff's men processed the scene messily 
themselves rather than wait for the ABI. The owner, Rick Blair, was in Tuscaloosa at the time of the murder and raced back when he was alerted. He told the Alabama Journal that it was the longest two-hour drive of his life. He said that there was a bank bag with $50 in change that Rhonda would have taken from the safe and put in the register. Blair reported that $35 was missing. The other $15 left in the drawer was in change, not bills. The sheriff's men and the ABI at the time believed that Rhonda was killed during a robbery. Her blouse was torn open during a struggle, they claimed. But most robberies don't happen during the morning in broad daylight before a business has even had time to make much money to be in the register. None of it made sense. But local authorities insisted Rhonda was murdered during a robbery. Years later, a new investigation by the ABI would found that her blouse was unbuttoned, her pants were unzipped, and her bra was pushed up over her breasts. And she also had been bludgeoned and there were signs of strangulation. This would seem to indicate a sex crime. At the time, officials said no semen was found on Rhonda's body and ruled out sexual assault as a motive. But the coroner found numerous scratches and bruises on the right side of her neck and forehead. There had definitely been a struggle. Would Rhonda have really fought with a man who just wanted the money in the cash register? That doesn't make sense. And why would someone there just to rob the place chase her into the back? The first suspects that police focused in on were two Hispanic men who had allegedly been seen in Monroeville on the day of the shooting looking for work. Police eventually tracked the men to Florida and found they could not have been in Monroeville at the time of the murder. This is an indicator of how local cops were looking at this crime. No white man is going to murder a beloved white town girl. The only white man who was questioned was a former owner of the cleaners, who was cleared. In just a few weeks after Rhonda's murder, the police were officially out of leads, and Monroe County, as well as the small town, started gossiping about their incompetence. The gossip turned into a public nightmare for the elected sheriff as criticisms of Sheriff Tate, his department, and the local prosecutor were all printed in local newspapers. Even the radio was repeating the rumors and complaints. Tate had been elected sheriff only days before Rhonda's murder. It was his first term. He was under a lot of heat to solve this crime, as many questioned his competency for the job. By November 23rd, it was reported in a Montgomery paper that sales of guns, or rather pistols, had skyrocketed after the unsolved murder. Women were many of the new customers. They worked in factories, diners, and mills on late shifts, and they were scared. As Rhonda Morrison's murder continued to dominate headlines, the murder of a young woman named Vicki Lynn Pittman from neighboring Escambia County wasn't garnering much attention. Her body was found lying in the middle of the road on March 29th, four months after Rhonda's murder. She was bludgeoned to death. Newspapers reported that the police speculated Vicki had learned about a Southwest Alabama theft and forgery ring. But unlike with Rhonda, police had a suspect fairly early on in Vicki's case, a man named Ralph Myers. He was a career criminal, a drug dealer who had come up in foster care. He had also been horrifically burned in a fire, which disfigured his face and neck, requiring multiple surgeries just to function. The horrible scarring drew stares from strangers and also made him quite memorable. He had recently been dating a woman named Karen Kelly. She had just been involved in a public scandal and lost custody of her children, and she fell into drugs and then into an unlikely relationship with Ralph Myers. She was also implicated in the crime. And she was the only connection to Walter McMillan. She had an affair with a married McMillan, something he was not proud of, but also something he knew was dangerous. Karen was a white woman. Black men were still targeted for interracial relationships, and he knew it. He was 12 years old when a man from Monroe County was lynched for dating a white woman. I'm going to pause now for a word from our sponsors. 
I don't know about you, but meal planning is my least favorite thing to do. I don't have the time or patience to search online or flip through recipe books. And takeout food is so expensive. You should try getting fuller plates and keeping a fuller wallet with America's best value meal kit, Every Plate. Every Plate does the planning, shopping, and prepping for you. And the kit comes with easy-to-follow recipes with pre-portioned ingredients, eliminating the waste and saving time. I just made the sweet and tangy cherry meatballs with roasted zucchini and garlic mashed potatoes. My whole picky family loved it, and it was super easy to make. And it only took me about 30 minutes to pull all of that together. Delicious meal my whole family enjoyed, without the hassle of recipe hunting or going to the grocery store. Even at its regular price, every plate is 58% cheaper than other major meal kits on the market. And every plate is constantly expanding their shipping zones. Check to make sure your zip code is included where they ship at checkout. Get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SOUTHERNFRIED3. That's 40% off your first three boxes. Again, get three whole weeks of EveryPlate meals for just $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering my promo code SOUTHERNFRIED3. We all remember birthdays, anniversaries, and of course holidays. The Parcast Network remembers important dates in true crime history. Today in True Crime is a daily podcast from Parcast that takes you back to the most significant events in true crime that happened each day in history. And I'm delighted to announce that I'm guest hosting the episode that premieres on Wednesday, February 26th. There hasn't been a daily true crime show like this before, and Parcast has been a pioneer in the podcasting world, so I'm really excited for the opportunity to guest host. Be sure to follow Today in True Crime on Spotify or wherever you're listening now so you never run out of daily true crime content again. And don't forget to catch me as a guest host this coming Wednesday, February 26th. That's Today in True Crime. Walter McMillan, known to family as Johnny D, was born on October 27, 1941 in a black settlement near Monroeville. I will continue to call him Walter, as he is referred that way in almost everything I have read, and I don't want to be confusing. He grew up extremely poor, working the fields with his family. His parents were sharecroppers in the Jim Crow era, and while he did attend elementary school briefly, by the time he was nine years old, he was back picking cotton. Brian Stevenson wrote that by the age of 11, Walter could run a plow as well as a grown man but white landowners were not pulling the profits they used to in cotton from low-wage tenant farming and sharecropping. The state of Alabama introduced a series of tax incentives for pulp and paper mills. Now timber farming was a growing business, and Walter saw the advantages. He started his own pulpwood business in the 1970s. By the 1980s, he had developed the reputation of a solid businessman, even among white society. He was well-liked, but he worked hard to be well-liked. He was friendly and had a good work ethic, and he knew he had to be accommodating and extra friendly around the white people he sold to. He was married to a woman named Minnie and had nine children. He was a family man, but his one vice was stepping out on Minnie. He was discreet and careful with his affairs, and he knew the dangers of getting involved with a white woman. But by the 1980s, he thought times were changing. A young woman working as a waitress at Waffle House named Karen Kelly kept flirting with him. She was 18 years his junior, 25 years old, and married with children herself. Walter, 43 years old, quickly learned he had made a mistake. When her husband found out she was cheating with a black man, it became a huge scandal. He took her to court for custody of their children, and Walter was subpoenaed to testify. He tried to sidestep the issue, claiming he and Karen were just friends, but her husband's lawyer did a lot of damage with crude questioning, obviously insinuating that there had been a sexual relationship. Walter came out of court changed and fearful. Many didn't find out right away, but now he had a reputation. He had only one misdemeanor charge on his record for a bar fight. And yeah, he drank a little, but so did white men. That wasn't a big deal. But his affair with a white woman, Karen Kelly, put a target on his back. He ended the relationship, 
and that, along with losing custody of her children, sent Karen spiraling into drugs. This is how she met Ralph Myers, who, though he was a white man, with his criminal history and upbringing, would not have normally been in her class. She was soon caught up in drug dealing with Ralph, and as I said earlier, the murder of Vicki Lynn Pittman was considered drug-related. Ralph Myers was quickly implicated, and as a career criminal, he was skilled in misdirection. But in this case, he pointed the finger at a sheriff in another county. He was laughed off for that. And then he pointed to a black man named Isaac Daly. Luckily, Isaac Daly had been in jail on another offense at the time of Vicki's murder. But Ralph Myers was well aware of the publicity of the Rhonda Morrison murder. He knew the cops were more interested in solving that. So he threw them a ridiculous bone. He admitted he was involved with the murder of Vicki Pittman, but his accomplices were Karen Kelly and her, quote, black boyfriend, Walter McMillan. He then told police that Walter was responsible for the murder of Rhonda Morrison as well, and that he sold marijuana. Now the cops were paying attention. Brian Stevenson said that when Myers mentioned Walter's name, he likely remembered him from the Kelly custody hearings. He was the black man who broke up a white woman's marriage. Still, the ABI wanted some proof that the men knew each other. They watched Walter McMillan go into a store. Ralph Myers couldn't pick Walter out. He finally asked the owner, who pointed to Walter, and then Myers handed him a note, supposedly written by Karen Kelly. Walter reportedly looked confused, and then dropped the note in a trash can. The ABI now had no evidence that the two men even knew each other. But they, along with Sheriff Tate, still insisted on working the McMillan theory of Rhonda's murder. And the theory was preposterous. Ralph Myers claimed that on November 1st, the day of Rhonda's murder, he was at a gas station pumping gas when Walter McMillan stopped and forced him at gunpoint to get into his truck. Myers claimed that Walter said his arm hurt and that he needed him to drive. Myers claimed he protested but felt he had no choice, so he drove Walter to the Jackson Cleaners and stayed in the truck, as Walter instructed him to. He said Walter was in the cleaners so long that he drove down the street to buy a pack of cigarettes, and when he returned, Walter was walking out of the cleaners. When he got into the truck, he supposedly told Ralph Myers he had killed Rhonda Morrison. Myers then said Walter drove him back to get his own truck and said he would kill him if he told anyone about it. Sometime during his questioning with local law enforcement and the ABI, Sheriff Tate, realizing that they were getting nowhere, casually suggested that maybe Walter had sexually assaulted Ralph. Ralph Myers jumped at this chance and readily agreed that he did. Sodomy was still a crime under Alabama law as a non-procreative sex act. This law stayed on the books until 2014, when it was finally overturned by the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, despite the fact that the Supreme Court had ruled that kind of law unconstitutional back in 2003. Well, now the cops had a new charge for Walter. They still had no concrete evidence of his involvement with Rhonda's murder, but they did arrest him on June 7, 1987, seven months after her murder. More than a dozen officers showed up to take Walter in, and when he asked what he was charged with, and Sheriff Tate told him sodomy, he said he didn't understand the meaning of the word. When the sheriff explained, Walter was so unbelieving, he actually laughed, which, of course, pissed Tate off, who let off a torrent of slurs with the N-word and even hinted at a lynching. Once he was taken in for questioning, the questions became about Rhonda Morrison, not the sodomy allegation. Walter was even more confused and vehemently denied both allegations. Brian Stevenson, in his book, Just Mercy, summed up how outrageous Ralph's allegations were. An African-American man planning a robbery in the heart of Monroeville in the middle of the day stops and randomly selects a white man to become his accomplice. He further points out that by charging Walter with sodomy, Walter was further demonized in the community. In hopes of finding another witness to tie Walter to the crime, the cops brought Walter's truck over to the jail and showed it to Bill Hooks, a well-known jailhouse informant. Hooks was a young black man known to snitch on anyone if it would get him less time. 
Sheriff Tate promised to release Hooks from jail and give him the reward money if he could connect Walter McMillan's truck to the Morrison murder. I should point out here that by now, the state of Alabama, the governor, and other private interest groups had raised $16,000 for a reward leading to their arrest of Rhonda's murderer. Naturally, Bill Hooks jumped at the chance and claimed he had seen a truck racing away from the cleaners that day with two men inside. When shown Walter's truck, he positively identified it. The problem was, Walter's truck had been altered into a lowrider months after Rhonda's murder. But still, Hooks positively identified it. The second witness was all law enforcement needed to charge Walter with capital murder. And it was a damned lie. For the record, Hooks did not collect the $16,000, but he was refunded a fine that he had paid for a previous charge. By now, the black community was rallying around Walter. He had several alibi witnesses. So many, it's actually incredible. His family had a fish fry that day, not only for themselves, but they also sold fish sandwiches on the side of the road as a fundraiser for their church. Even a local cop stopped by the house to buy a sandwich and noted it in his police log. Dozens of family members and church friends saw Walter. Walter also was changing the transmission on his truck that day. He was with a mechanic friend of his from 9.30 a.m. to about 11 o'clock when the family started arriving for the fish fry, the exact time frame in which police said Rhonda had been murdered. So not only was he seen by dozens of witnesses, his truck was actually out of commission at the time of the murder and right after, until the new transmission was installed. Family, church members, black pastors, and many other friends pleaded with Sheriff Tate to let Walter go, but he refused. What's more, Ralph Myers now had a change of heart. His dumbass finally realized he admitted to being a part of a capital murder case, and he wasn't escaping himself without charges. So he recanted. The cops didn't care. Shortly after, Walter McMillan was sent to death row in Holman State Prison in Atmore, Alabama, to await charges. It was an unprecedented move and an effective one. He was there for 15 months before trial. Naturally, for an innocent man locked in with murderers, it was soul-crushing. He pleaded with Sheriff Tate that he was innocent and had been at the fish fry that day, and Tate reportedly told him, quote, I don't give a damn what you say or what you do. I don't give a damn what your people say either. I'm going to put 12 people on a jury who are going to find your goddamn black ass guilty. On December 11th, 1987, Walter McMillan and Ralph Myers were jointly indicted for the murder of Rhonda Morrison. Walter got a two-count indictment because the murder was committed during a robbery. The sodomy charge, used mainly against Walter publicly, was dropped. Ralph Myers agreed to testify against Walter and took a 30-year plea deal. Walter's friends, family, and church members raised enough money to hire two civil rights lawyers out of Selma, Alabama. You would think this would bode well for Walter, but it didn't really. The district attorney of Monroe County, Ted Pearson, knew that a recent Supreme Court decision would make it difficult to keep black people off of the jury. Monroe County residents were about 40% black. There was a very good chance many black citizens would be called. So as with many high-profile cases, Walter's defense asked for a change of venue. And at the time, especially for a black defendant, these motions were rarely granted. The DA expected this and did not oppose the motion to the attorney's surprise. So Judge Robert E. Lee Key granted the motion and moved the trial to Baldwin County, which had beautiful Gulf of Mexico beaches, and the African-American population was only 9%, even though there were several nearby counties where the racial makeup was more evenly divided. This was definitely strategic and immoral. There were only a handful of black Baldwin County citizens in the jury pool. And as expected, the DA used all but one of his peremptory strikes to exclude all but one black person. Walter's lawyers objected, but the judge refused. By now, the prosecution had found another white informant named Joe Hightower, who was willing to testify that he had seen Walter's truck at the cleaners that morning, too. 
Walter had never even heard of this guy. And the prosecution had successfully turned a man who was supposed to have been a defense witness. Ernest Welch, known as the Furniture Man, was actually Rhonda Morrison's uncle. He came on the first of every month to collect payment for furniture bought on credit from the McMillans. Everyone remembered the man being so distraught because his niece had been murdered that day. Now, he testified that it was a different day, and he should know, since it was his niece that was murdered. Walter then watched Ralph Meyer's testimony, and it was so disjointed and made up, he thought people would laugh. Ralph even now claimed that there was another white man involved, but he didn't know who he was. Then we have the jailhouse snitch, Bill Hook, testifying to seeing Walter's truck leaving the cleaners that day. The problem with his story, which would be brought up on appeals, was that he insisted Walter's truck was a lowrider. It was the same with Joe Hightower, a white informant who testified to the same thing. The problem was, Walter did lower his truck, but not until six months after Rhonda was murdered. If these men were identifying a lowrider truck, it wasn't his. The DA actually hid the exculpatory evidence about Walter's truck being lowered after Rhonda's murder. The two men merely identified the truck as Walter McMillan's in court, and they were not challenged by any other witnesses. So of the state's four witnesses, one had completely changed his story, the furniture man. One, Ralph Myers, had tried numerous times to recant his story, only to be thrown on death row himself until he relented and agreed to testify against Walter. And two men Walter did not know, claiming they recognized his personal truck, said they saw him leaving the laundromat that morning. When it was the defense's turn to put on witnesses, though there had been dozens of people who saw Walter that day and could give him an alibi, only three were called. In the book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson doesn't spend much time criticizing Walter's trial attorneys. He didn't even meet Walter until after he was convicted. But I wonder if these attorneys didn't just read the room and sense that no matter how many upstanding black citizens were willing to speak for Walter McMillan, it made no difference. And there had been plenty of questionable rulings that could be helpful on appeal. Maybe they were cutting their losses for now. After a day and a half trial, and three hours of deliberation, the jury found Walter guilty and sentenced him to life in prison. On September 19, 1988, Judge Robert E. Lee Key Jr. overruled the jury's recommendation of a life sentence and imposed the death penalty. This unique Alabama practice, called Judge Override, allows elected trial judges to override jury verdicts of life and impose death sentences. Judge Key remarked, quote, McMillan deserved to be executed for the brutal killing of a young lady in the first full flower of adulthood. As Judge Key changed Walter's sentence, his son Johnny started yelling and making a scene in the courtroom. Walter had to watch the bailiffs tackle his son to the ground as he was taken away. On his ride back to death row, Walter recognized one of his transport officers as one of those bailiffs. His handcuffs had been put on too tightly this time, but when he complained, the officers just laughed at him. Despondent, angry, and frustrated, Walter McMillan was transported back to death row and was trying to figure out how it could have happened. Luckily, within two months, he would meet a young black lawyer who came to visit him on death row. Brian Stevenson was a Harvard Law School graduate and was the director of the newly formed Alabama Capital Representation Resource Center in Montgomery. Stephen took a special interest in Walter's case, first because of Judge Key's override, but particularly after talking to Walter, who insisted he was innocent. Stevenson believed him. I'm going to pause now for a final word from our sponsors. 
Most of us have been through something that is just truly overwhelming. Whether it is a trauma or the sudden loss of a loved one, you need someone to talk to. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. From your phone, laptop, or tablet, you can connect with a professional counselor via text, chat, phone, or video and start communicating with your counselor in under 24 hours. BetterHelp has over 3,000 licensed therapists in all 50 states, treating depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, grief, and other issues that so many of us suffer from. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time with no additional charges. And anything you share is confidential. And there is even financial aid for those who qualify. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Southern Fried True Crime listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code SOUTHERN. Why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com southern. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com southern Spring and summer are just around the corner. How are you doing with your fitness goals? We all want to be in better shape, not just losing weight, but practicing self-care and achieving personal goals. But working towards swimsuit season is always a goal for many. What if you could use just one program for all your health and weight loss needs? Let me tell you about Noom. Noom is not a diet. It's a habit-changing solution that helps you develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Noom has one of the largest and most accurate food databases available, so you can track your meal habits, visualize portion sizes, and check calories at a glance. I have found Noom to be so helpful in meal planning, especially when I'm out with friends trying to order something healthy in a restaurant. With the Noom app on your phone, you've got support in the palm of your hand whenever you need it. And I can log meals as I go, making it so easy to keep track of my calories. And aside from a personal goal specialist, there's a whole community of Noomers cheering you on. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial at noom n-o-o-m dot com slash southern fried what do you have to lose visit noom.com slash southern fried to start your trial today again that's noom.com slash southern fried it's the last weight loss program you'll need almost as soon as brian stevenson agreed to take walter's case he got a threatening phone call from the racist judge who had overrided the jury's decision Judge Robert E. Lee Key Jr., aptly named, called Stevenson's new office in Montgomery. The temporary receptionist he had hired told him there was a Robert E. Lee on the phone. He thought she was joking. She wasn't. In Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, he quotes the judge as saying, Why in the hell would you want to represent someone like Walter McMillan? Do you know he's reputed to be one of the biggest drug dealers in all of South Alabama? First of all, the drug dealing reference to Walter was barely touched on at trial, though it was how Ralph Myers falsely connected him in the first place. But the judge went on saying, quote, No one really understands how depraved the situation is, including me, but I know it's ugly. These men might even be Dixie Mafia. I mean, that is laughable. How in the hell would a robbery of $35 from a laundromat which supposedly led to the murder of a teenage girl, be remotely connected to an organization like the Dixie Mafia. I won't go into the origins of the Dixie Mafia, much of which is debated anyway, but Judge Key might as well have said that Cosa Nostra had something to do with Rhonda's murder. And the thing that kills me about all of this, if they had really wanted to frame Walter McMillan and make it believable, they could have tried this as an attempted sexual assault gone wrong. Walter had already been caught up in the scandal of dating a white woman. One of his sons was married to a white woman. In this racially charged town, that accusation would have made more sense. And in fact, the crime scene did indicate an attempted sexual assault of Rhonda Morrison. Why would a respected businessman like Walter McMillan, regardless of his race, rob a laundromat for a paltry $35? He wouldn't. He didn't. But the newly elected sheriff, Tom Tate, was under fire for not solving the case. And soon, the district attorney's office was as well. They got some shady snitches to tell lies in court while hiding other evidence to close this case. They didn't care about Rhonda Morrison or the pain of her family and community. And what they did was sow more pain for the black and white communities in Monroeville. Brian Stevenson was undeterred. He would not give up on Walter McMillan. 
His office was repeatedly on alert for bomb threats called in. And there was one man that continued to call the office that Brian was suspicious of. He just seemed to know too much about the case. Stevenson knew that the appeals process was an uphill battle. It would be even better if an investigation brought about the real killer of Rhonda Morrison. So his office investigated this man and brought new agents from the Alabama Bureau of Investigation in on it. I will circle back to this later. Stevenson first decided to appeal Walter's case to the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. He thought it may be overturned for lack of evidence and a new trial ordered. By this time, there was a new Monroe County District Attorney, Tom Chapman. Stephen decided to roll the dice and reach out to Chapman, hoping he would be more fair and sympathetic. Any prosecutor reading that file should have been outraged by the lack of evidence. And Stevenson also had an affidavit from a young man named Darnell Houston, who swore that the witness, Bill Hooks, was lying. He had worked all day with Bill on the day of the murders at Napa Auto Parts, and he remembered it distinctly because they heard the sirens and then watched as police in an ambulance raced down the street to the laundromat. He and Bill had clocked in at 8 a.m. that morning. That's one state witness down, you would think. Before Stevenson could even call the new DA, Darnell called him from the county jail. He had been arrested for perjury. Law enforcement and the prosecutors already knew he was talking to Darnell. What's more, Darnell had already given this evidence to the prosecution before Walter's trial, and they had hidden it. Stevenson was outraged. He set up a meeting with the new DA and was severely disappointed. Chapman was clearly going to toe the line with his predecessor and defend the conviction. Chapman said he might drop the perjury charge against Darnell since the judge had denied Stevenson's first motion to reopen the case. But the threat was still there. Quote, I do want people to know that if they make false statements concerning this case, they are going to be held accountable. Meaning, anyone coming forward with exculpatory evidence, evidence that showed Walter's innocence, could be arrested for perjury. This was basically blackmail. Stevenson was floored. He had not even gotten the judge's decision back yet, and there had been no hearing. And he was angry now, and pointed out that without Hook's testimony, the conviction would not be valid because it was based on accomplice testimony. Chapman was angry, too. He said the most he could do for him was drop the perjury charge against Darnell. The rest he would have to take up on formal appeal. And Darnell was now scared. He was intimidated, and rightly so. But Stevenson assured him that since the motion was denied, he did not have to testify, for now. Not only were bomb threats called in, Stevenson was fairly sure his lines were tapped. His office was constantly terrorized, but they were all determined to do their jobs. From 1990 to 1993, the Alabama Court of Appeals turned down four appeals for Walter McMillan. The first denial was in 1991, where Stevenson sought appeal on several grounds, including the false testimony of Bill Hooks. In 1992, it looked as though they had a chance. Ralph Myers had confessed that he lied in court to Walter's attorneys, and they found out he had recanted before. Stevenson and his team fought for a new trial, alleging various constitutional violations, including, quote, that a key state witness had recanted his testimony, that the appellant's conviction had now been obtained by perjured testimony, and that the evidence of perjury was newly discovered. The petition also alleged that the state of Alabama, quote, had violated his constitutional rights by withholding exculpatory and impeachment information. Once again, denied. In the fall of 1992, Brian Stevenson finally agreed to a segment on 60 Minutes about the case. It was a respected national news program, but he still thought it was a risk. All local news reporting had been so biased that he was jaded. But 60 Minutes annihilated the case against Walter McMillan comparing it to the injustices of To Kill a Mockingbird. Brian Stevenson and Walter's friends and family were relieved, and despite his fears, it seemed the community of Monroeville was willing to open their eyes to this injustice now. Walter's fourth appeal in February of 1993 was different. By now, 
both eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen Walter's truck had recanted, along with Ralph Myers. That means there were no witnesses. They also introduced evidence proving that Walter's truck had not been altered to a lowrider until months after Rhonda's murder. This evidence had been withheld at trial and ignored in previous appeals. Though both supposed eyewitnesses had specifically said Walter owned a lowrider truck. Furthermore, Stevenson's team had uncovered a confession tape of Ralph Myers. When they flipped the tape over in the player and listened to the other side, they heard Myers complaining that he was being forced to implicate Walter McMillan. This time, the Court of Appeals agreed that, quote, the state suppressed exculpatory evidence and impeachment evidence that had been requested by the defense, thus denying the appellant due process of law, requiring the reversal of his conviction and death sentence and the remand of the case for a new trial. This was good news, but it was not an outright dismissal. It meant Walter could get a new trial. However, at this point, the new DA, Tom Chapman, finally saw which way the wind was blowing. He vowed not to prosecute Walter again and to do everything he could to help him get off of death row. But Stevenson was not finished. He appealed for a fifth time with a motion to dismiss all charges. On March 2, 1993, the judges of the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals ruled 5-0 to zero to reverse Walter's conviction and dismiss all charges. That was exoneration. Walter had now spent six years on death row. He was 52 years old, but it was like prison had aged him 20 years. Stevenson and his team were concerned about Walter returning to Monroeville. Just because they had won didn't mean the town would let it go. The 60-minute segment had gone a long way to rehabilitating Walter's image to the town, but they were still nervous. Walter stayed with Stevenson and then other friends in Montgomery for a while before returning to his hometown of Monroeville. Walter then filed a civil suit against Sheriff Tate, one of his investigators, and one of the ABI investigators who had taken part in railroading him. They had threatened and bribed witnesses. The Supreme Court held that a county sheriff could not be sued for monetary damages. The other parties settled out of court. Unfortunately, Walter McMillan left death row a changed and unhealthy man. He developed early-onset dementia, believed to have been caused by the trauma of his false imprisonment. He was shuffled around between relatives until he was finally placed in a nursing home, where he died on September 11, 2013. He was a month shy of his 72nd birthday. Now let's go back to who the real murderer possibly or probably was. Brian Stevenson touched on it only briefly in his book, Just Mercy. But his colleague and former Washington Post reporter, Pete Early, explored it more in his book, Circumstantial Evidence. After the 60-minute segment, as I said, two new ABI agents were assigned to the case. After going over all the evidence, they determined that Rhonda's murder was indeed a sex crime. As I told you in the beginning, Rhonda's shirt wasn't just torn in a struggle. Her bra was pushed above her breasts, and her pants were unzipped. She had likely been fighting off a sexual assault, broke free, and then the perpetrator got spooked and shot her, and then hid her body under the clothing racks. Pete Early wrote that once the ABI agents determined Rhonda's murder was a sex crime, they quickly zeroed in on a subject, a man familiar to Stevenson and Early. The man was given a pseudonym in Early's book because he has never been charged. Stevenson did not even go that far into it. But this man had an obsession with Rhonda's case. He frequently called local authorities as well as Walter's attorneys with suggestions of possible killers. He had even contacted Rhonda's parents with his information an especially cruel act, as Early pointed out. Once this man found out the ABI was looking into him, he backed off. However, he couldn't resist meeting with Pete Early when he found out he was writing a book on the case. He allowed Early to quote him for his book. He had been theorizing that Rhonda had been receiving obscene phone calls. Actually, he characterized them as flirting. But on the morning of her murder, something went wrong. Here it is, in full, the quote to Pete Early. The man said, Okay, here is my theory. On the morning of the murder, 
The caller had been more direct when he telephoned Rhonda. He comes on to Rhonda. Maybe this call is obscene. She gets upset and is trying to figure out who has been telephoning her. Let's just say maybe the caller walked into that place of business on that Saturday morning and Rhonda suddenly put a voice to a face. She suddenly knows who has been calling her. At that moment, Rhonda would have become angry. She would have verbally confronted her caller. Maybe she even threatened to call the police or tell her father. An argument had started. Maybe she had reached for the telephone. I'm saying it wasn't premeditated. The caller had not intended to pull out his pistol, but suddenly he did exactly that. Lots of men in southern Alabama carry pocket pistols. The killer then ordered Rhonda into the back of the store. Maybe the gunman had gotten angry and lost control. Maybe he thought Rhonda would enjoy having sex. Maybe it just happened. He finished the quote with, Someone panicked. The ABI fully investigated this man and found that he had harassed a former girlfriend, and then other women stepped forward accusing him of harassment by phone and in person. The ABI recommended charging this man to the Monroe County officials, but they refused. Evidently, this man was from a prominent family in town. What a shocker. Not long after this, the man fled the area, and he has never been charged. I think this was the real murderer of Rhonda Morrison. He had probably been making obscene calls and stalking her. His quote for Pete Early's book smacks of the truth because of its defensiveness. He would have been more accusing rather than defensive if it wasn't him. Remember, he said the killer did not premeditate her murder, but rather thought she might enjoy being sexually assaulted. And then he lost control. He panicked. This makes much more sense when you consider the crime scene. Even though it was contaminated, there was much evidence to prove that Rhonda had been forced into the back, probably into the bathroom, but she had broken free and ran before she was raped. The man did panic. He pulled out his gun before she could escape and shot her. Then he drug her body out of sight and ducked out unseen. It sickens me that Monroe County refused to charge this man, ignoring the ABI's recommendation. It sounds to me like they were protecting a prominent family's white son. Charles Morrison passed away in September of 2018 without ever seeing justice for his daughter's murder. I did not find an obituary for Mrs. Morrison, but she would be very elderly at this time, and still, her daughter's killer remains free. Rhonda's funeral services had been held at her father's church, Eastwood Baptist, before she was laid to rest at Johnson Memorial Gardens in Monroeville. It is difficult to imagine the anguish her parents went through over the years. They spoke with the press often, hoping to generate leads. Rhonda was their pride and joy, their only daughter, and they remained heartbroken over her unsolved murder. There is one small measure of justice in this tragic case. Even though by 2017, Sheriff Tom Tate had been re-elected seven times. In 2018, it came out that he had been embezzling money, tens of thousands of dollars allocated to pay for prisoners' meals. The Southern Center for Human Rights and the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice sued 49 county sheriffs in Alabama for this supposed legal practice. The sheriffs claimed they were allowed to pocket the overage on accounts as long as inmates are fed regular and nutritious meals. Documents show that the Monroe County Sheriff's Office received a total of $423,000 over that three-year period to pay for a total of about 84,000 days' worth of meals for inmates in the county's jails. Of that money, over $110,000 was, quote, declared excess and paid to Sheriff Thomas Tate, according to the ledgers. As far as I can tell, Tate has not been prosecuted on this, as it was a loophole in the law, one that has now been addressed publicly, if not legally. Lawsuits are still ongoing. The sheriff did not seek re-election in 2019, but was allowed to retire in disgrace. I did say it was only a small measure of justice. Brian Stevenson, along with becoming a distinguished professor at Harvard Law, is also renowned for successfully arguing before the Supreme Court in 2012 that lifetime sentences for juveniles convicted of homicide constituted cruel and unusual punishment. His book, 
Just Mercy, does use the Macmillan case as a backdrop, but it is really about the problem of mass incarceration, of wrongful convictions. It is about how our country throws away minorities, the poor, the mentally ill, and especially our youths. It is an incredible read, and I highly recommend it. It has been adapted into a movie starring Jamie Foxx as Walter McMillan and Michael B. Jordan as Brian Stevenson. I wanted to see it before this episode, but as some of the facts of the movie are combined for time and artistic effect, I did not want to be influenced. But I cannot wait to see the film. Brian Stevenson's book is brilliant and should be taught in schools. I was surprised to find myself agreeing with his opinion of To Kill a Mockingbird, a book and movie I have loved all my life. It is easy as a white woman to romanticize that book, and I do still believe in its themes of courage and forgiveness. But it does not reflect the real life of black people of that time or of our black and brown citizens now. The hero of To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch says in the book, quote, the one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. I have always loved that quote and do believe that a vast majority of people do live by their conscience. But it is very clear to me that no one involved in the framing and prosecution of Walter McMillan even had a conscience. They just wanted to clear a controversial case and get on with their lives. And they condemned an innocent man to die to do that. Walter McMillan's wife divorced him while he was still on death row, just awaiting trial. In order to terrorize him and hoping he would confess, they put him on death row before he was even convicted. Walter lost six years of his life and his health on death row. He died a sick, confused, and often lonely old man. No one can ever make that right. And no one will ever be brought to justice for the murder an attempted rape of Rhonda Renee Morrison. Sadly, Walter and Rhonda were both victims of the same racist judicial system in Monroeville, Alabama. I sincerely hope that the publicity of the McMillan case has changed local law enforcement. Though the Smithsonian article written just five years ago reflects the ongoing racial divide in the town that inspired the fictional town of Maycomb. The more things change, the more they stay the same in some small southern towns. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Thank you to listener Julie Moore for suggesting this case. Also, I highly recommend the book Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative and the man who helped free Walter Johnny D. McMillan. Winner of the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction and also the NAACP Image Award for Nonfiction, the book examines the social injustices for minorities, but specifically related to the death penalty, which was his special interest as a new attorney when he took Walter's case. For a more extensive look at the murder of Rhonda Morrison and McMillan's wrongful conviction, I recommend Pete Early's Circumstantial Evidence, Death, Life, and Justice in a Southern Town. He goes much further into the investigation of Rhonda's unsolved murder. Early is also an award-winning author for his work. He won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award and an Edgar for Best Fact Crime Book. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on most large platforms like Stitcher and Spotify. I have recently joined Stitcher Premium, and for one month, you can try it out for free by using my promo code, Southern Fried. After that, for about five bucks a month, you can listen to Southern Fried and many other shows ad-free. Go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code Southern Fried to sign up for one free month. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com. There you can sign up to be a patron of the show, make a one-time donation, or purchase show merchandise. That's southernfriedtruecrime.com. And don't forget to check out my YouTube channel. If you have any case suggestions, please email southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I'm sorry, but I no longer answer private messages on social media. Too many get lost. So email is best. And please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.